Welcome to the Corporate Legal Ops Consortium podcast, where we dive deep into conversations with technology and legal ops thought leaders from across the ecosystem. This is Clock Talk. I'm your host, Jen McCarran. I'm on the board of directors at Clock, and I lead the Netflix legal operations and technology team. On this episode, we're going back to Las Vegas to the 2023 Clock Global Institute Podcast Lounge. And my guest is NQ, an Emmy-nominated poet, multi-platinum songwriter, world-renowned keynote speaker, and the best-selling author of Inquire Within. So our theme for CGI 2023 was transformation, which is what we as an industry all have in common as our mission for legal departments. After his thought-provoking keynote about transformation, NQ had to comfort me through my vulnerability hangover from revealing it all in my opening keynote. We then got deep on personal transformation, the truth about growth being sometimes painful, and why we need to keep telling our stories. If we can change our stories, we can change our lives. Hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Clock Talk podcast. Thank you, Jen. Happy to be here. Can we talk about what just happened out there in the ballroom in front of a few thousand people? I feel transformed. I was backstage feeling the full range of emotions of life. What did you just do to us? I tried to take people on a poetic journey into themselves as individuals and also connect them to the community that exists here at Clock yeah. through the concepts of transformation, growth, and ultimately empowerment and infinite possibilities. That's why I'm so moved. This community, as we've talked about, is really tight-knit. It's tight-knit. Yeah. Even though many of us don't know one another, we're in this constant dialogue together online and social media. Then we get together here and it's an explosion of us all into the room those energies. So for you to bring us into ourselves, I think is the ultimate warm up for a week of each other. Thank you. Yeah. You know, when people came up to me afterwards and were saying how much they appreciated the performance, I asked every single one of them, what brought you here to clock? And without fail, everybody said the people, the connections, the relationships. And that was more than any professional thing that could possibly happen from that connection or the relationship. It was just about going deep with somebody yeah. and making new friends that are in your profession. And it's unusual. I don't know that accounting ops has an equivalent trade group and <laughs> they're all getting together and, and feeling the range of feelings and hugging in the hallways, but may we inspire other industries to do the same. But yeah, I think it's a powerful community because the work we do in this legal thing, it's hard. Yeah, It's very hard. It's an old institution. And we're trying to go against the grain or go against the precedential thinking and introduce new ideas. It's terrifying. Sometimes I look at us all and I'm like, how did we get here? It's hard. So I think when we come together, there's a lightning moment that happens in this week. And I think the first couple of strikes happened this morning in your talk, in your poems, in your performance. Growth can be painful. Yeah, you said that in you one have of your to, pieces. You have to stretch outside of your comfort zone. Yes. You have to break the boundaries as a person and as a profession. Yes. So if that's what you guys are trying to do, then sometimes you will kind of feel like, have I gone too far? But the only way that you can 
create new norms, open people's minds and open people's hearts is by leading by example. And I think you did that as well in your speech to open up and set the table right for everybody. Thanks. That was a very vulnerable share for me. And I can do vulnerability. I am practiced at feeling my feelings. You can think you're practiced at all of that and have, I have 10,000 hours feeling my feelings out loud. I'm a songwriter. I know how to deliver them to an audience and song or whatever it is. And it's, I still felt scared after I stepped off stage and went, what just happened? What did I just say? I felt like I was in a vulnerability blackout. So what was that like for you? Yeah. What was it like when you were on stage? And then what did you feel when you were off stage? When I was on stage, I was talking to my friends. I was Mm -hmm. talking to this intimate group of community members that I am in a constant dialogue with and they know me. They know the shape of me. They know my voice by now. They know my silhouette. So it just felt like I was sharing a secret. I was like, guess what? I don't have the answers. So I'm going to stick around and find out. And it takes time and sticking around to find out sometimes. It was weirdly very comfortable on stage. It felt like home. And then I stepped backstage. I was like, what just happened? Did you have a vulnerability hangover? Yeah. I, or maybe I'm in that right now. And I'm, I'm looking at people like, am I okay? Are you okay? Are we okay? In one of those moments. It's a lot to really expose that. Well, you know what I've learned as a performer? You want to lead a group of people in a certain direction. Conceptually, also emotionally, for me, artistically, because people aren't really used to like hearing poetry at a keynote. And I'm sure that more than three quarters of the people here were like, wait, what am I watching at the beginning? And it took them a while to settle in. And then ultimately, I feel that they were very grateful for the whole journey that they took with me. But what I've learned as a performer is is that if you want them to come with you in a certain direction, you can go only so far ahead of them. So like wherever they are, you can do 25% more. Makes sense. Maybe 30% more. And if you do that and you stay in that range, they will follow you. If you go 75% more, you're going to lose them. And they're going to be like, where is that person going? So I think like for you, when you got on stage, you took them the right percentage forwards. And it's supposed to feel weird for you too, because if it doesn't feel weird for you, then you're not really risking. And there's a difference between telling vulnerability and showing vulnerability. Yes, And you did both of those things. And so if you had only told it, it would have come from your mind, but this came from your body. There's a difference of feeling there, but in doing that, you also inspire other people to do the same. And ultimately when I get off stage, it's much less about the experience that I had on stage or the experience that they had watching me on stage. It's actually the experience of what happens afterwards. How does it ripple into their lives internally? And then how does it ripple into the community? How do you feel when you come off stage? How'd you feel today? I felt really, really good. I loved the room. I didn't like the circular tables. I know it was like a breakfast thing, yeah, but it blocks the energy. They are a bummer, yeah. You know, and also this is not a criticism. It's just a reality of like performing and logistics. When you have circular tables, what happens is is everybody has a tendency to look at each other a little bit. When everyone's facing forwards. You got them. You got them. Yeah. But when they can look and go, is somebody else into it? Blah, blah, blah. What's this like weird thing that happens? So you have to overcome that. But what I felt was that everybody is here for the right reasons. Everybody really wants to connect with each other. They want to learn. They want to grow. They want to transform. And the fostering of that community is not only at this event, it's throughout the year. And you can feel that. 
So as a performer, that's fun for me to have an opportunity to connect with a group of people in a profession that I would never normally connect with and go deep with them. I love this point you just made about only going 25% ahead of your audience. We talk about this in this work all the time when we're transforming the legal department and how it works. That's really the mission of these roles and why we're gathered to talk about it. A lot of times people, when they're imparting their vision and strategic story of where I'm taking you legal, you could tell a vision of the future. You can paint that picture, like a simple picture people can understand, but sometimes they present and speak and they're too far ahead in the future and their legal folks are all the way back there. That's right. And I use, especially if I'm talking to more scientific people, I say our job as transformation agents in the legal industry, we have to meet them where they actually literally are standing and do the work in ourselves to get all the way back there and know when you have found where they are and then only go maybe one standard deviation forward and only in the work, take them that far, not to that. If you try to take them to that, you can show them that as a preview Mm -hmm. of the future. But if you only stay there, like you said, you're going to lose them. And it's part of the reason why I think my legal ops people, we lose our audience with our legal folks because we don't know how to set that vision and then take all those steps back. I think you always, to your great point, have to meet people where they are and accept them where they are and then talk to them about the things that are important to them. And if you do that, then you can open up a window to a new world. But if you expect them to be where you are, then you're not actually present. You're not present. (laughs) And this is like any conversation, any relationship, but specifically to what you were talking about as well. And think about some of the project work we do tactically. It's implementing large technology solutions, like stuff can cost mega millions by the time you're done, take a few years. So if you implement from that place too far ahead and then you're live and the store is open for business and they're all the way back there going, why did we do this again? It's another place of peril for us. And I've died there and I've come back to life to tell you all, (laughs) you got to back it up. You got to find your people and listen more. I think you said, talk with them more listening way more gets you back to where they are. Yeah. You listen to what are people's issues. Speaking of listening more and talking to people in queue, I'm fascinated by your background from songwriting. I think I read you're from Santa Monica, native Californian. How did you discover all of this? And you're making a wonderful career in a few mediums, primarily poetry and going out and inspiring groups like us around the world to get creative, to get connected. How did this all start? Well, I was born in Santa Monica, California, and my mom's a school teacher, and my father was not around at all, and I just fell in love with hip-hop music when I was a kid. And I could hear that in your spoken word. Yeah. I can hear the inflections. I just had a lot of stuff that was kind of complicated for me growing up and not any real outlets yeah. for that or sense of empowerment in my life. and freestyling kind of became my first meditation. I didn't feel like it was at that age. (laughs) I wasn't like overly spiritual or anything like that, but it was the thing that put me into the moment. And then battling was like a sport and stuff like that. Then when I was 19, I wound up in an open mic for poets in LA and I started doing my rapping acapella and people responded. And that 
community, like your community, became a family. And that was my artistic college. I mean, I didn't go to college. Yeah. And so this was my avenue to sharpen my creative tools yeah. and ended up being on HBO's Deaf Poetry Jam. And we won the National Poetry Slam Championships yes. and had a lot of success within poetry, but there wasn't really a way to monetize it. And most of the best experiences I've ever had was sitting in the audience watching somebody else do poetry on stage. And so these incredibly talented people oftentimes couldn't figure out how to transition into a career and moved on into other things and used their poetry talent in other ways. And then a few people were able to break through and I just kind of kept at it over and over and over again and was broke for a lot of years and sure. didn't know where I was going and how I was going to arrive on the other side. Yeah. But if you keep doing what you love, life opens up. There's a saying, follow the path and the path will lead the way. And I would say that's what my experience becoming a professional poet has been. And now a brief message from our sponsor. As legal ops professionals, it's our job to streamline processes and drive impact for the business. And one of the biggest ways we can do that is through contracts. Enter Ironclad, the leading CLM for innovative companies. Legal teams from L'Oreal, Dropbox, and OpenAI use Ironclad to not only save money and time, but also unlock critical business insights from data within contracts and around the contracting process itself. Recently named to the Forbes AI 50 list, Ironclad's AI-powered tools help you review and negotiate contracts faster, scale compliance across your organization, and extract contract data at scale. It's the only platform flexible enough to handle every type of contract workflow, whether a sales agreement, an HR agreement, or even click wrap agreement, and the only platform that has processed over 1 billion contracts and counting. Check out ironcladapp.com to learn more and start your free trial today. And now, back to the show. It's amazing. And some of that steered into music as well. You have some hits that you've written with some big artists. I think I read you've dabbled in Disney. Have you dabbled in Disney? I've written over 50 songs for Disney television over the years. Wow. A bunch of them have been multi-platinum and gold. And one of them was recently nominated for an Emmy and won a BMI award and all sorts of things. But, you know, if I had stuck to being a purist about my art, I probably would never have stretched into these other areas. Yeah. I think part of me becoming successful was obsession. <laughs> that and, is required. I and think expression. that's an ingredient, yes. <laughs> but also desperation. And weirdly enough, when I got into songwriting, even though I was writing stuff for artists that at the time I wasn't listening to, it ended up being one of the best things for me creatively because it forced me back to transformation outside yeah. of my own comfort zone. And I had to write from my imagination. And doing that gave me more tools. And when I went back to writing poetry for myself, I had kind of an expansive way to communicate. Yeah, it's writing from imagination, often for someone else's voice. So many exactly. of your songs are sung by artists, big lead singer types, and they have to read your song and connect with it and become a part of their story. Yeah. And so I have to find my truth in their story and vice versa. I mean, oftentimes if it's an artist that we're actually writing with that artist, yeah. 
So that artist is putting their fingerprint on it, not only vocally, but, you know, with the lyrics. But it's like such an amazing opportunity to see into the human experience, to try to figure out how to express my truth through somebody else's story. Yeah. And in a three minute and 24 second story window. You know very well. Yeah. I know the pop formula and it tends, well, new, new pop is under three minutes. You see these songs now, they're coming out like 226. Yeah. 240. Yeah. Like Ryan Tedder can get a hit out and say it all in a few words in 226. Love that. And then the three minuteers, the classic pop. I think that's the classic pop length. How do you get a whole story in there? Well, that's another thing that I learned. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I tend to do is like choppy, rhythmic, a lot of internal rhymes and a lot of material. Three minutes or five minutes. I'm just like, rapid fire. And I can push and pull, slow down, speed up, emphasize in whatever way I see fit. Every time I perform, it's definitely a performance that I know well, but it's also a new moment that I'm creating. Whereas like when I'm writing songs, it's actually like vastly less. Everything is round. It has to like roll. It has to round and roll and resolve in some way. That's so true. And And you have to say something that's deep enough and has layers enough to where people will go back to the song, whether they're consciously or unconsciously thinking about it. But you can't say something that's so deep that it takes them out of the song because then they're not thinking about the song anymore. They're thinking about the lyric and you actually want them in the song. So it's like, these are the types of things that I kind of learned along the way. Hip hop has more words. It's more volume and more density in there. I really respect that. And pop has way less. And it's trying to find a clear, concise message. Simple. I think the reading level on pop songs is around third grade. That's what Max Martin, I think, recommends. Yeah. And it's so it's accessibility. So people can hear it once and then relate the human experience to it. It's one of the great mysteries of the world to me. I can tell how passionate you are about it. I love that. Is songwriting and Everything comes back to that. For me, at least as an artist, all of this great work I get to do in tech, what a great creative outlet. But for me, it all comes back to the struggle, overcoming the struggle in yourself and then writing that out in a song so other people can connect to that. It's kind of like what you said. I mean, we're all just kind of going through the hero's journey over and over and over again. And you can apply that to any area of life, any profession of life any person. Thinking about this as craft and you've had some songs do really well. How much writing went behind into those behind the scenes that didn't go anywhere? I'm trying to get a sense for volume because I think people in all walks of life in our field, they think that someone like me, I've been at it a few years here, that I can just walk in and implement the contract solution and I have all the answers. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, no, no, it's the same volume of struggle and the amount of failures and wasted tech money went on for me to get a good one to come through. Does that resonate with you in the songwriting or in the poetry creation or are you a one hit one? You just write it and it's out. A one hit wonder. Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely have way more material than no one's ever heard than I have that people have heard, let alone things that become successful. The process is more important than the product to me. Yes. Always. It's the same kind of like way to say the journey is the destination. That's funny that you said the process is more important than the product. 
because that was in version five of my speech that really? I gave today. Yeah. Oh, incredible. It's to try to inspire people to become obsessed with the process, which I'm obsessed with any process I put myself in to create. I get obsessed when I'm in a project at work or writing a song and look out, it's like blinders. They're up and I'm not stopping until the puzzle emerges and the message emerges or the solution, whatever it is. Yeah. No, I love that. The puzzle. Definitely. That's how I look at all these things. They're just like a little puzzle and you just haven't seen the box first. You haven't seen the box. So you you don't even know what it's going to look like necessarily when it's done, but you do have all the pieces. Yeah. Intros are really weirdly written last in everything that I create or write or the project I do at work. The intro is written last. I mean, I talked on stage today about some product we accidentally invented. (laughs) And I didn't set out to invent this one tech product inside Netflix. They were just really persistent and I couldn't tell them, no, it would have been bad business. So Mm -hmm. we just kept making things and making things and making things. There were a hundred iterations of a technology solution and they would blow up some days and some days they would come in and just say, I hate this. And we go, well, let's do version 51. And we just kept going. And a year and a half later, we were like, oh my goodness, this can be boxed. Mm. Speaking of boxed, this could be packaged and sold in the industry to other studios for actual money. Accidental. Accident. But what I say that with a little asterisk, because there's no such thing. Purposely accidental. Purposefully accidental or intentionally accidental. Intentionally or- Unintentional. It's intentionally <laughs> undefined. And to, this is one of your great quotes of the day that this is when you dialed direct with me, when you opened and said, when you define yourself, you confine yourself. And the, the paradox of that and the truth in that, it's when you are rigid and you're so obsessed with defining yourself and I'm a this person, I'm yeah. a that, I'm a this. It's like, how do you even know that? Have you tested that in the market or on yourself for 10,000 hours? And And even if you have, I mean, you you could wake up tomorrow and want something different. The people that don't give themselves the freedom to make a different choice are robbing themselves from the opportunity to see life anew every day. And the thing is, you don't have to make a different choice. I could decide to wake up tomorrow and I don't want to be a poet anymore. I haven't made that decision yet. Every day I keep waking up and I go, yeah, I want to pursue this. Some days are amazing. Some days are challenging. Some days it's purposeful accidents all over the place and some feel good and some feel bad. But I just trust that if I keep showing up, the world will unfold and move me in a direction of the life that I want to create for myself and my family and my community and people that I have yet to meet. So I think defining yourself is necessary to be in the world and pretending otherwise is being overly idealistic. But overly defining yourself stops you from having the space to grow. And I think growth is what life is all about. Life is literally about evolution. And when you calcify your life and you stop yourself from growing and evolving, you're putting yourself into a prison of the life that you've created. It's almost like yourself as a product and being committed to always iterating. That's something that I tell my team this at Netflix. I tell my wife this. 
if you saw me at the beginning of this journey in this job I have at Netflix, this great legal tech job, or my wife saw me when I was 25, you, <laughs> you guys, you wouldn't recognize me, unrecognizable yeah. and everything that you see that, you know, shimmers and is big or bright or dark and shadowy. This has come after many years of iteration and going into it all, mapping this stuff out, definition as a starting point, but then blast it. Like, forget the borders, keep right. drawing, keep drawing to something new. And I think if you can design your work that way, as a poet, as a songwriter, as a legal tech professional, and you can design your life that way, this stuff becomes pretty fun. It's pretty rad. I'm having a radical time, actually, I not knowing the, where this is all going. Yeah, like, I think the not knowing means you can arrive somewhere in a surprising yeah. way. Like the thing that you didn't mean to create. And then once you created it, you didn't know how much of an impact it could have even beyond who and why you thought you were creating yeah. this thing. Yeah. If you had been so defined or confined yeah. in your idea of that thing, you might've actually missed the possibility or you would have said, I don't feel like the iterations are working because we're failing. We haven't figured it out in a year and a half. We're going to stop and we're going to pivot in another more certain direction. And then you would have filled up all the space yeah. and you wouldn't have given yourself that blank canvas. Yeah. You wouldn't have learned everything you learned along the way. And you wouldn't have come out with something that nobody could have imagined at the beginning. So I think it's really beautiful that you're able to do that in your work. It's beautiful you're able to do that in your art. And I think it's an important reminder and a reflection for me to reaffirm that for myself. Well, we're coming up on our time here in just a moment. I want to take us out in cue with one last concept that came up in a few of your pieces today. You talked about the house a lot and you talked about the rooms. And I got this message that it's our responsibility to rebuild the house, the house that is your job, where you are, where you're investing your time, your craft, yourself, your sense of self. Talk to us more in the podcast about that. What is this house you're speaking of? And how have you in your life gone through the rooms to make them livable and fertile with ideas and creativity and great memories as your poetry was talking about? Honestly, that particular piece is really about consumerism. I'm definitely a conscious capitalist, but I think that our culture teaches us to consume and consume and consume and that we're going to consume enough at some point to be enough. Yeah. And there's never an end to more. And so I think consumerism at the consequence of distracting yourself yeah. from your own life. From your own self. From your own self, from what's happening in the world around you, from having compassion for others. That can be a really dangerous thing. So it was kind of like a metaphor for me not to need something out there to make me feel whole and to realize that if I feel whole right here and right now, I am infinitely enough. And that also will allow me to connect deeper to my true north and what my curiosity is for where I want to go next, because it's beautiful to consume, but you want to make sure that you're balancing out your consumption with your creation. Consumption, creation, and then your ability to intake and be inspired so that you can create, exude and put it back out there. 
Exactly. And I also think that to bring it full circle, that is why everybody came here is to have a moment to reflect and a moment to connect so that when they go back to their lives, they bring that new energy, they bring that new perspective. And I think it's important. You know, you can't focus so much on what you're doing that you forget about yourself because you need to give yourself the energy and the love and the compassion so that you can then focus on other people. And if you don't put yourself first, you won't be able to live up to the potential of how you can be there for others. Yeah, there's another irony there. It's like selfishness in that context is actually selfless. Give yourself the oxygen, make sure the tank is full. Come to the Institute like this, you can fill up with your peers. So we can all stare each other in the eye and go, this work is really hard, right? And we can all nod and smile and have a drink and break bread and run around to sessions. You get new people out of it, new community connections. I get people I can call and say, how did you do X? And they will then walk me through step by step because we bonded here and shared a moment or a meal. And this is really a battery for this industry, for legal and transforming how legal does its thing. People are very passionate about what they do here, but they're also passionate about who they are. And it's like really good to do something you're passionate about. And it's also good to just be human together. Be human together. What a great way to end. And Q, thanks for coming in the podcast studio. Thank you, Jen. Appreciate it. That about wraps up this episode. Thank you and Q for the inspiration. You can catch this and other episodes of Clock Talk wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. Until next time.